0: Today's show is brought to you by TransferWise. Do you ever need to send money internationally? Sure, your bank or PayPal can get you money from A to B, but that transfer will cost you more than it should, a lot more. That's the old way of doing things. Let me tell you about the new, smarter, and cheaper way to send money internationally, TransferWise. TransferWise was founded by two friends who were frustrated by their bank's bad exchange rates and high fees. They wondered, what if we could bypass the banks entirely? So they built TransferWise. That was seven years ago. Today, more than 2 million people use TransferWise, people sending money home, businesses paying suppliers, freelancers getting paid, the list goes on. TransferWise's clever new technology gives you a great exchange rate and a low fee, so it'll put some extra money in your pocket for more important things. No one has ever said, it's important that my bank gets some extra money. Test it out for free at TransferWise.com slash podcast or download the app. Once again, that's TransferWise.com slash podcast. It's a wise way to send money. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as someone starting a fashion magazine for the Trump family. I think orange really is their color, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Joanna Coles, the chief content officer at Hearst Magazines. She previously was editor in chief of Cosmopolitan and author of a new book called Love Rules How to Find a Real Relationship in a Digital World, which is right up my alley. The last time I interviewed her on stage at Code Media in 2017, she turned the tables on me and tried to interview me and came up with a sex position called Swisher, was it? It was, called the Swisher. Yes. We'll get, <laughs> we'll see how far you can get today. Joanna, welcome
1: to Recode Decode. I think you have to be athletic to be able to perform the Swisher. Yes, you that's do. That's all i Yes, saying. you do. You
0: have to do a lot of soul cycle and, and other I, I, stretchy, bendy things. Yeah, and you have yoga. got to stay
1: flexible in all ways. <laughs> Thank and, you
0: for updating the and
1: position. I, and I want to reassure people that the chair really is red it because is. they haven't seen the studio here, which is rather fancy. No, it's not rather
0: fancy. It's, it's quite a, fancy. Board. It's it's a, fancy. It's not it's fancy. It's a
1: dining room table and there's some it, bits of old food. That's on the right. Of that's
0: exactly. That's my food. I didn't get to eat it all day. Joanna, we're talking about your book. Now, look. Good. Last time I interviewed you besides you discussing sex positions with me, which I, the only time I've turned red on stage, um, you were also uh, running Cosmopolitan at the time, right? You had not moved to your lofty position. So why not let's give up a little background of you for the people because people tuning in may not know who you are, although everybody in New York does. Give us a quick bio of Joanna Cole's.
1: Well, I started in journalism. My first magazine I developed when I was ten. Mm-hmm. I sent it round to the neighbours. I also sent it what to the it Queen called? of England. <laughs> it was called Your Choice. Of course, there was no choice in whether or not you received it. I, I actually <laughs> conceived of junk mail. My father would laboriously uh, photocopy it, deliver uh-huh. it to our neighbours with me. I sent it to the Queen and to my. What astonishment, was it about? What was the theme of? The oh, spiritual? it was my random jottings at the age of 10 with my, uh, with my great friend who lived next door. The two of us did it together and it was our observations on street life where uh-huh. we lived uh-huh. uh, which in was Leeds. Where, I'm guessing, it Leeds. was in the north of England yes. and there was no street life so yeah. we were very ahead of our time <laughs> uh, and able to write about nothing so in fact we were precursors to the web. Um, and then the Queen's lady in waiting wrote back and said she'd very much, Her Majesty had very much enjoyed reading it and was looking forward to further copies which <laughs> uh obviously Obviously, that was the start of my career. Oh, no. I needed no further encouragement, and I've been doing it ever since. <laughs> so,
0: and the Queen is still enjoying your, your work. Um, I know you sent a copy of this to her because uh, she needs, you know, some help. I should send
1: a copy of her. You know where I should send it to? The new British Minister of Loneliness. Oh, Britain right. We're going to get app- to that. Appointed yes, Minister I saw of that. Loneliness. We're going to get
0: to that idea because it, there's some of the themes in your book here. So, you then went on from your 10-year-old success.
1: Well, I knew I always wanted to be a journalist because I mm. wanted an excuse not unlike you, Cara, mm-hmm. to ask people questions. Yeah. I'm just super nosy. I love mm-hmm. I'm trying to understand what's going on. So I was a journalist. I worked for the Daily Telegraph and the Guardian. The Guardian eventually posted me to New York where I moved 20 years ago uh, and had the astonishingly good job of being able to wander across America at will, mm-hmm. writing about interesting people I came across and follow, right. following stories. Um, and then when I had my Now, sec- you make fun. You wrote really substantive pieces about really great pieces. Well, probably. there was a lot going on. I mean, it, as I had the good fortune to start at the beginning of the sort of process of, of Monica Lewinsky and the sort of impeachment process mm-hmm. and what that meant for American politics. And really, I could write about anything, business, politics, American life. Um, well, there are stories that stood out to me. And one, of course, was the British nanny story mm-hmm. who was accused of manslaughter, of killing a child who'd been in her care. Mm-hmm. And it was a fascinating story because it was a working mother, a, a doctor, uh, married to an Indian. They were living just outside Boston. And it felt like everything in the sort of moment that was yuppie in America mm-hmm. at that time, sort of following on from 30-something, uh, coalesced in this story about this girl who was working for not very much money looking after their child. And it, it raised I raised everybody's Anxieties across a variety. About working. Yeah, about working parents, about the difficulty of finding great childcare, Mm -hmm. about young girls being put in positions they really had no experience and weren't ready for, about the American justice system. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was an astonishing story. It went on for what felt like a long time. She was sentenced to 25 years and then an extraordinary judgment. um, Hilla Zobel, the judge, gave her time served. She spent nearly a year in jail waiting for her trial and he let her go and it was the most extraordinary moment be, even being in the courtroom I remember right. when she was sentenced and she mm-hmm. collapsed at being sentenced and mm-hmm. was gasping and hyperventilating and crying and weeping and her parents who'd come over from Britain were crying and weeping because obviously this was the last thing they'd expected when they mm-hmm. sent their daughter out on this adventure to be an au pair in America which in Europe is sold as this incredibly exciting opportunity for right. young women and here she was in the worst possible situation 25 years Uh, in an American jail. And then, of course, you had the terrible plight of the parents who'd lost Mm -hmm. their child. And it was unclear um, quite what had happened. The brilliant lawyering of Barry Sheck, Mm -hmm. who pointed out that the child could have been hurt in other ways Mm -hmm. um, for the Innocence Project. And so that was really the first story I ended up covering. And it was so layered and so fascinating and so sad in all ways. But it was a, a, a brilliant start to what became my total love affair with America. Mm-hmm. And you stayed. I stayed. Yeah. I didn't want to go back to Britain. I had the opportunity to go back and follow Tony Blair and sort of be what we call the sketch writer where you're writing about the prime minister every day. Mm-hmm. And I just suddenly thought, mm-hmm. no, my business with America is not yet done. And right. here I am. It's been right. hard to get rid of so me. You
0: <laughs> and you married and stayed here. And you wanted to stay because you liked the country, presumably. There's lots of expats here from Britain.
1: Yeah, although I don't hang out with British people, uh, particularly. Not because I don't like them, but I spent a lot of time hanging out with British people in Britain. And what, for me, was exciting about America was just this extraordinary, complex, difficult, Mm -hmm. fascinating country. And Britain can feel very small. London, in particular, feels small because everything happens there. So you have, Mm -hmm. you know, you have the publishing, you have politics, you have finance. Everything in Britain happens in London. Mm -hmm. And if you've lived there, as I had and worked there for 13 years I was ready for new pastures and right. also the New York media loves British people. I'm not entirely sure why. Um <laughs> we but do. but we you know, we seem to thrive there. Yes, yeah. We like the British. We like the accent. It's just that's it. It's, that's it's pretty, a, that's I, if only I'd known is. that I would have come that's so much all earlier. It is. It's so charming. Earlier. It remains charming. So you stayed here and then you worked, you moved to I have my second child. I have two sons like you, mm-hmm. and I realised with the second son I could no longer cover stories at the drop of a hat and just Mm -hmm. travel as I had been doing. And so something had to give and it was really me. Mm -hmm. Uh, It wasn't the job's fault. My life had just changed and we no longer jibed. So I moved into magazines. Thinking that it would be better for me to have more control over my schedule, which Mm -hmm. is in fact what happened. And I'm always mindful of, I I get asked a lot by young women, how do you have any balance? And I always reassure them there's zero balance. They will never have balance. It's the Mm -hmm. wrong question. You have to embrace the chaos. Uh, But also that uh, the more senior you become, the more control you have over Over your your schedule schedule. and the more money you have, which Mm -hmm. really helps. And the more choices you get.
0: Mm-hmm. And so you you moved up the
1: editing. I moved up the editing. I joined New York Magazine. Mm-hmm. I then became the editor of Marie Claire Magazine, mm-hmm. which was enormous fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, Did you have a fashion background? Or I had covered fashion a little bit for the London Times. So I'd been to the shows and written about the shows. And I wasn't intimidated by fashion. I was right. curious about right. it. And also fashion designers are incredibly interesting people. And the ones that manage to marry creativity with commerce are exceptional yes, people. Yes, absolutely they absolutely are in new york a bit like the sort of you know mm-hmm. the valley tech entrepreneurs sure. because they're able to do this these two things really cleverly so i was very interested in the fashion community i'm interested in in what i wear i'm fascinated by the semiotics of clothes so it was a great job right. and mary claire has a lot of really good journalism in, right. It, right. about they women they all do all these women's magazines yeah, and and it's underplayed and undervalued um a little bit more valued now absolutely. but at the time uh it was enormous fun to be able to get serious pieces in the magazine.
0: Right. And so you did that and then you moved to... Then
1: Cos- I moved to Cosmo in 2012, right. the sort of Bible of I know. So did you come American right women? after
0: Helen Goliath Brown or was there an editor no, in No, there was an
1: editor in between, Kate White, who oh, did White. a fantastic right, job sure. yeah. for 15 years. Yeah. Uh, when I got there, I was really fascinated by Helen's legacy. And by happenstance, she died the weekend before I got the job. Oh, wow. So suddenly... Uh, The obituary columns were full of her. I went back and I read all her books. Mm -hmm. I went back and looked at what she'd done with the magazine when she reinvented it in 1965. And... It's easy, you know, in her last few years, she became politically sort of incorrect in not a great way, but mm-hmm. she truly was the great editor of the 20th century. Right, she's every them, contempor- sure. Yeah, every contemporary magazine, Vanity Fair, Cosmo now, all owe an enormous debt to the way mm-hmm. she reinvented uh, the consumer magazine. Probably her and Diana Vreeland, right? I guess she is more well, consumer. Yeah, she's a couple. But Helen produced something that made a phenomenal amount of money mm-hmm. and spoke to women in a way they had never never been spoken to before. So when they offered you that job at Hearst, what was your thinking? Were you Well, I immediately suggested five other people that would be able to do it better than I could, which is always my my response when anybody offers me a job, actually. (laughs) Uh, I can immediately think of lots of reasons why I shouldn't do it, which I think is a depressingly female response, probably. Um, Well, I went and looked at it, and I thought, oh, I'm not quite sure I can do this, because I still felt it it, it wasn't quite modern enough. But then when I talked to them about it. They said, well, we want you to remake it. We want you to rethink it. And so that's what I was able to do. And when Helen reinvented the magazine, she started in 1965, the same year as the FDA approved the pill, Mm -hmm. which changed everything for women, as you know. Um, And when I got there, I had had the opportunity to read a galley of Lean In. And mm-hmm. I knew that it was going to be a big book, and I could tell that there was a sort this of Cheryl Sandberg's book. Yeah, Cheryl Sandberg's book about why there are no women in leadership. It's mm-hmm. such a fundamental point that nobody had really glommed onto, and she put the research together, and it became this extraordinary document of our mm-hmm. times. Um, and I sort of realized there was going to be a new feminist reawakening, which we were able to really start addressing the minute i arrived mm-hmm. and which you which you changed, but you you kept a lot of it, you know you did a lot of saucy thing, you did the the sort well, of, I do um, like a little bit you of like, sauce. You like
0: a lot of saucy. I mean, you you kept that the, the
1: the sense of it, correct? Well, we kept the idea that love and relationships are incredibly important in a woman's life, at right. the center of it. Right. Uh, but what we did do was pivot away from how a woman should please a man to how right. a woman should please in herself. Thirty days
0: and things like that. Well,
1: yeah. But more importantly, sort of how to set his thighs on fire. Yeah, yeah. We yeah. wanted you to set your own thighs on fire. Right, so right. So we right. pivoted it more so it became about women putting themselves more centrally mm-hmm. rather than servicing a man. Now, did you, at the time... And you, we also became more inclusive, actually. Right. Th- what
0: year was this? That Th- you- this was 2012. So this is after the internet. Age started, and obviously you're running a magazine which was already showing strains. Magazines were already showing strains. How did you think about that? Because I want to get into why you wrote the book, because you're talking about relationships in the book. It's the same the concept of changing things, and people used to get their cues from magazines about love and sex and, and how, how they should behave in a relationship.
1: Well, I mean, what was exciting about the digital age for us in terms of magazines was that suddenly we could get a much, much bigger audience for mm-hmm. Cosmo. So we suddenly sort of blossomed and expanded, and we were able to really uh, put our foot to the pedal in terms of marrying Cosmo as a digital brand, Mm -hmm. not just a print brand. We Mm -hmm. set up a series of conferences that were about empowering young women. And really the concept of empowering women was just beginning to bubble under. And we were able to really explore that. Mm -hmm. And unlike a lot of
0: magazines, one of the magazine editors, you were not afraid of the internet. I I met so many and they were so afraid
1: of the internet. They just didn't have a, a, they didn't embrace it too much. Well, why would you be afraid? of something which connects you to your readers I mean first of all the most exciting thing was r- addressing readers complaints on Twitter suddenly you mm-hmm. were hearing back from people in real time about mm-hmm. what they thought about the magazine right. and then the frustrating part of being a monthly editor is you only get to do it 12 times a year so right. it's this you know over slightly or it can feel slightly overwrought as this thing that you're birthing every month. Mm -hmm. Whereas the web has this wonderfully sort of slapdash, let's get it out, let's join the conversation moment. And I've never been afraid of joining the conversation. I've always enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think Brits are adversarial, our culture is adversarial, Mm -hmm. our politics are adversarial. Mm -hmm the way of proving yourself as a good employee in Britain is to argue with your boss. It's actually rather different from here. And the first <laughs> time I got into the American workforce, mm-hmm. I remember someone pulling me aside after six weeks and saying, why do you keep doing this? And I was like, what am I doing? They're like, you argue all the time. <laughs> and I thought, oh, God, that's what I thought you were supposed to yeah, do. And in yeah. fact, actually, it turns out a lot of bosses don't want to be argued with. Right. But... Um, to me, it felt like the opening of, of the door and letting people in to talk to you about what you were trying to do. And you would learn so much from them.
0: Right, right. And so when you were moving this, the magazine, you got more and more interested in digital issues and how it affects everything. Was that the impetus for this Well, book what I
1: loved was the, um, well, there are two things. What I loved was the ability to then be able to talk to readers on a daily and now right. hourly basis. So mm-hmm. you went from monthly to, I mean, at Hearst, we call it from months a moments. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but as an editor, I was thinking about it in terms of I want to be your best friend. Cosmo has the reputation for being the big sister that you can mm-hmm. ask questions you don't want to discuss with your mum and your right. friends don't quite know the answers to. But your older mm-hmm. sister or your older cousin is going to be the sympathetic right. woman at your side. A bit like having car next to you so you can ask questions. <laughs> I don't have any advice questions. to give anybody. I don't believe that. <laughs> but I wanted people to feel like they could have Cosmo, i.e. The, this older sister, with them at all times mm-hmm. in their pocket. Mm-hmm. And you could ask her things and she would be there and she would have a point of view on things that were going on in the culture, be Mm -hmm. it about Kardashians or Stormy Daniels or, or, or whatever that Cosmo would have a point of view and so being allowed to do that on a daily hourly basis felt incredibly exciting mm-hmm. and also meant that young women were sort of propelled right. to and they have were, a conversation in the center of the conversation. They, so did
0: the magazine become the center then or not the center?
1: Well I think it became a really powerful voice for young
0: women. So a brand, a brand that was, could be anywhere. Well and it
1: suddenly meant young women were being heard in a right. larger conversation whereas before their voices had been largely excluded.
0: Right or you just talk down to them, essentially?
1: Well, I don't think we
0: ever talked down to them. Or but I think
1: finally, the, the web allowed people who had been silenced to have a voice, right? That's one of the wonderful things about it. Now, of course, it also amplifies voices right. that you don't want to be heard. Yeah. But the good news is it allowed a whole generation of young women who had something to say to be heard. Right. So you then moved to become chief of content. What is that? Well, we have 300 magazines Mm -hmm. globally at Hearst and Mm -hmm. I wanted to rethink the way we were making content. We were Mm -hmm. making it in a way that magazines had been made for 25 years, which felt old-fashioned given suddenly all the tech tools we had at our disposal. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to think about you know, now the world is much faster and what's happening in China impacts what's happening here and we can have the same global conversation. Why were we doing magazines so specifically located or or so specifically aimed at local audiences? Was Mm -hmm. the the opportunity to do an English-speaking version of Cosmo as opposed Mm -hmm. to a different Cosmo with a different team in every country? Uh, And as the world gets... Closer. We've been internally reorganizing to allow us to be able to do that.
0: How does the magazine business look now, from your perspective? Well, I think. I mean, you used to get most. Hearst used to get most of this money from ESPN and A and E, and now those are troubled. Those are more troubled assets than they were. What does the magazine landscape look like going forward?
1: Well, and I, I wouldn't say they were troubled. I'd say they were challenges, and they Mm -hmm. were going through disruption, like Mm -hmm. many, many other businesses. But as we know from all sorts of businesses, you can come out much stronger. I think the magazine uh, and print uh, looks pretty exciting, actually, given the break in trust of Mm -hmm. a lot of content online. And I do think, and I will certainly talk about this in regards to the book, but we're in this moment that I call post-digital euphoria, Mm -hmm. where our excitement over these devices and all the promises that they uh, gave us of, of creating a frictionless life Um, We now know the upsides, but we're beginning to appreciate the downsides. And Mm -hmm. I know, and you know from your own behaviour, that the longer you spend on your device scrolling through, Mm -hmm. um, yes, you can get better informed, and it certainly allows you to stay on top of what's happening right now in the moment, but Mm -hmm. it can also leave you feeling listless and jangly and edgy. And if you can bear the panic of disconnecting from it, and putting it down and picking up a magazine or picking up a book, it is so much more restorative Mm -hmm. and you can follow a narrative. And if you can focus your concentration span on something for half an hour, you know that you learn more than Mm -hmm. you do. And I read a fascinating statistic that the um, Statue of Liberty is 304 feet tall, Mm -hmm. which is exactly the amount of the average amount of content that people scroll through on Facebook once a day. Wow. Now, you know, you can't read that much content today. Scroll through is a good way to put it. Right. You're just sort of aimlessly drifting through it to stay connected. And I understand it's very compelling to want to be connected at all times, but it's also incredibly empowering to disconnect, Mm -hmm. sit down, and actually read and learn something.
0: All right, well, that's perfect. segue when we get back into this book, because you were talking about what has happened to love uh, in this this jangly, what is it, post-euphoria?
1: Well, I think it's a a post-digital euphoria. That sounds like a,
0: a sex thing <laughs> so we'll get back when we, we should, get back. we should create a position for that <laughs> post you for sleeping it's called sleeping alright we're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor we'll be back with Hearst executive Joanna Coles who's written a book called Love Rules how to find a real relationship in a digital world today's show is brought to you by Squarespace with Squarespace you can create a beautiful website to showcase your work promote your business announce an upcoming event and so much more customize the look and feel of your site with just a few clicks using their gorgeous design templates Everything is optimized for mobile right out of the box. You can buy a domain and choose from over 200 extensions, and Squarespace offers free and secure hosting. There's nothing to patch or upgrade ever. But if you do need help, Squarespace offers award-winning customer support 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Are you ready to make your great ideas stand out? Head to squarespace.com for a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use the offer code DECODE to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com to start your free trial and then use the offer code DECODE to save 10%. I'd also like to tell you about one of our other podcasts, Recode Media, with Peter Kafka. Peter, who'd you talk to this week? I talked to Emily Steele. She won a Pulitzer Prize or a Pulitzer Prize, depending on how you say it, for her great work she did last year on sexual harassment at Fox News and then later at Vice Media. She's great. We had a great conversation about how to report really difficult stories like this. And also, this will blow your mind, why she doesn't do that much reporting on Twitter. It's amazing. That's a really good conversation. You will like it a lot. Sounds great, Peter. You can find Recode Media on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to your podcast. We're back with Joanna Coles. She has a new book. She's a big executive at hers since she ran Cosmopolitan. Huge no huge. huge. Well, you are kind of. I'm not sure what you do, but still. Still, I don't I don't know what anybody at these top of these magazine companies do. But you have a book called Love Rules, How to Find a, a Real Relationship in the Digital World. So talk about the impetus of the book. Was it from running Cosmo you got these you got this idea or what?
1: Well, there were two reasons I wrote the book. One was that I had spent a lot of time with young women. I mean, over the mm-hmm. years at Cosmo and Marie Claire, I talked to hundreds of young women. I was often going on college campuses, I was at women's conferences, and I became aware that although a lot of these women felt that they were were really beginning to achieve in the workplace. Mm -hmm. They were disappointed in their relationships. They were having difficulties figuring out how to have a 50-50 relationship. Mm -hmm. And they were frustrated. They felt that the ubiquity of porn Mm -hmm. uh, on devices meant that they were competing with porn. And that while digital apps are a great way of meeting people and extending your social network, uh, they can also make people using them feel into interchangeable. Mm You are interchangeable. Well, you are interchangeable, which doesn't mean you can't meet someone on it. I don't Mm -hmm. want people to think this is an anti-digital book. It's absolutely not. Um, But it's looking at the disadvantages of digital and how can we do a workaround, really, Mm -hmm. especially where love is concerned, because love is, besides your genetics and your DNA, the most important ingredient as an indicator of whether or not you will live a long and happy life. It's who you love and who loves you back. Mm -hmm. And people with strong social networks in real life live longer lives and are more satisfied. And we mentioned earlier that Britain has just appointed its first Minister for Loneliness because Mm -hmm. they're saying that loneliness and isolation in Britain in particular is now at epidemic levels and they Mm -hmm. need to address it.
0: Right. And loneliness brought about by online. Correct.
1: Well, what's interesting about being online is that it's very easy to think that you're communicating with right. people and that the value of that communication is somehow the same as sitting down with someone in real life mm-hmm. and having a chat or, or having dinner with them. And of course it's not. You don't get the same levels of satisfaction. Right. And I worry that for a generation that spends an enormous amount of time online, it's easy to become a voyeur of other people's lives mm-hmm. and stop participating in your own life. Right. Right, well, that, now that's a normal
0: observation we're talking about with online with this tech addiction and that you don't part of it. But let's talk specifically about love. Now, the only, the bone I do have to pick with you this book is it's all around food. I don't like food, like, don't- Well, I
1: call it a diet book for Right, love. I, I get that. And and, what, and and my analogy is, well, I was- faced, I hate ladies and food stuff, um, but go well, ahead. All right, tell uh, me why. You, you may hate it. Right. Um, women spend an enormous amount of time right. thinking about food. Right. And I wanted to compare the idea of food and love, because they're both incredibly important. Mm -hmm. You can't live without them. Mm -hmm. Uh, One can get obsessed about both. And just as there is junk food that can make you obese and leave you feeling crappy, so there are junk relationships. Mm -hmm. And it's easy to get, caught up in a junk relationship with toxic people just as the way that you can get addicted to junk food. Right. And I felt there were certain analogies there. I think of dating apps as being a little bit like Costco, mm-hmm. full of options, but you really need to head straight for the fresh produce aisle. Otherwise, you'll end up with a cart of stuff that you think you want. And then you get it home right. and you're like, none of this goes together. So none you, of it fits.
0: So you have a bunch of rules. So you start off, establish your ideal love weight. Yeah. Right. Uh, explain that to me.
1: Well, I'm- that that's really about trying to figure out, out what do you want. I ask mm-hmm. people to do quite a lot of work on their on their selves right. in this book and try and figure out what you want. And one of the interesting things that I think people aren't always honest about is what they're looking for. And mm-hmm. I remember talking to, to someone and I said, well, who is your perfect man? What is the kind of man? She said, I really want to meet Kevin Costner. <laughs> now, there was it was just not going to happen. Right. And sometimes I think when you spend a lot of time online, it's easy to sort of fantasize about breaking the connection Mm -hmm. and and getting to meet someone who frankly was never going to be interested in her. And so it's really about, and if you're on a diet, you know, people go on diets and they say, I'm going to lose 30 pounds by Friday and I'm Mm -hmm. just not going to eat anything. And then of course the next day you're completely out of whack. You're stuffing yourself with everything you can get your hands on. And it's like, no, slow and steady wins the race. Just Mm -hmm. cut out the fries, cut out the chips and you'll get to the place you want to get to. But you have to be realistic about it. So that was the point about set a realistic love weight. Right, right. And so the idea is, but
0: but online just encourages, I mean, you said cu- clear out your cupboards, sweep the fridge. Another one was like don't
1: eat... Uh um, well one of the things detox, that on one of reset the th- your metabolism Right. One of the things about being online is it's hard to forget people, right? So mm-hmm. you it's very easy to stalk an X. It's very easy to follow what people are doing. It's almost impossible to forget them. They crop up on friends, mm-hmm. you know, other friends' social right. feeds. Right. So it's this sense of you've got to try and get rid of the toxic people in your life. Mm-hmm to make way for people that may be, you know, healthier. Mm -hmm. And in the way that a good balanced diet will actually sustain you over the long haul, Mm -hmm. you want a good balanced diet of friends right. and lovers that mm-hmm. are going to keep you satisfied right. and sustain you.
0: So how do you do that? And in when a, I say
1: lovers I don't mean all <laughs> at the same time. I know I, I, I get do, that. I, I know you do, but I really right. don't. I really well, don't, don't. You, we're
0: in San Francisco, Joanna. Date a goat. Is that more
1: relaxed? Okay. You can date a goat. Yeah. You can date a goat. Yeah. I don't advise dating it. a goat. Well, it's well, not good, I guess. I Actually, people, on my 40th you know, birthday, judge. I went to see a play uh-huh. called Who is Sylvia, which was about oh, a man yeah. who fell in love with a goat. Right. It, it depressed me even more than being 40. <laughs> I came back and I was like, what was that about? That was not good. <laughs> it's Edward Albee, right? It was Edward Albee, yeah. and it uh-huh. was how I spent my 40th birthday. <laughs> and it was, thank right. God, it got better from I there. Had a really great party. What, what, yeah, what was, was I thinking? And I still don't thinking? understand what the metaphor of the goat was. Um, So, but
0: but when you're talking about this idea, but how do you establish that in online? Because I think everything that it's designed to do is
1: not to make connections, it's to make something else. Well, the key thing to do with dating apps is to get off the app and to get into real life as fast as you can. And here's one of the things that I found Mm -hmm. most interesting about what people Mm -hmm. uh, have been doing, and I heard a lot of complaints from women about it, um, was that When you get a match, Mm -hmm. uh, you immediately go into the next phase, which is flirty text exchanges, right? right? Mm -hmm. And they can go on for weeks Mm -hmm. without people ever speaking on the phone or without people meeting in the flesh. And when they do Mm -hmm. eventually meet in the flesh, one of the things I heard repeatedly from men and women was that you would meet this person that you'd had this flirty exchange with that you thought you knew. They came in, they didn't look at all like you expected them Mm -hmm. to look because you'd filled them with positive, attributes over this kind of weird spectral exchange. Mm-hmm. And then one or the other would frequently say, Oh, hi, oh, it's great to meet you. Look, I think we can both tell this isn't going to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to waste your time. It's been great. And off they went. And you then spent a month wasted fantasizing mm-hmm. about who this person is, and that mm-hmm. you might really get on when you eventually meet. It's such a waste of time. So too much texting. Well, you, sh- you should certainly have, if you think there's a connection there, you should certainly have a phone call to mm-hmm. figure out whether or not it's worth taking it to the next level and meeting them in real life. Mm-hmm. But the idea that this sort of flirtatious exchange is worth anything until you've actually met them, it's, it's not worth anything. Yeah, I think
0: text is demonic for relationships.
1: Well, I think it's very useful if you're in a relationship and you want to say you're five minutes late on the bus. That's boss. different, but I but think. But I think as a method of communication, right. it, it falls so short. It's right. comical. Right. Yeah, and it creates
0: problem. I think people don't ever see it. I don't think I've had the worst discussions on text in any of relationships I've had. All kinds, friendships, anything. Um, You end up getting in a in a very different frame of mind. But all of these things do encourage that. They encourage too much selection, too much choice, too much. Uh, everything. And then you feel dehumanized in a lot of ways. You feel
1: dehumanized. And also it takes you away from the work that's involved in creating a real relationship, Mm -hmm. which is about the awkward stuff of talking to someone, of establishing Mm -hmm. eye contact, of talking over each other, of trying to figure out if you find each other attractive. And the idea that you can tell if you find someone attractive by an online exchange is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. You need to have all five senses in play to figure out whether or not you want to see this person Mm -hmm. again. But it is the way most people are meeting. So. Well, it's a way a lot of people meeting and that's that's great. And if you look through the New York Times, uh, you'll see the, the wedding announcements. Mm-hmm. You'll see that many people now, I think a quarter on Sunday when yeah. I was checking, uh, have met on dating apps and they can be incredibly useful. But if you swipe, have an exchange and then think you've met the one, you are going to be sorely disappointed. They're brilliant, though, for extending your social network. And you know, the question you should be asking when you meet someone offline for the first time is not is he the one, am I the one for him or am I the one for her? It's Can I add this person to my actual network? Could they be a friend? Could I introduce someone else to them? Do I want to see them again? But don't sit there thinking, is this the one? Right. So, but but these things do suggest that, these apps.
0: Would you think the design of the apps is a problem or the gamification of them?
1: Well, I do think that Mary Aitken, who I quote extensively in the book and who's a brilliant cyber psychologist, talks about the fact that the web, as you've talked about many, many times, Mm -hmm. is designed by men, for men. Mm -hmm. Uh, I do like the Bumble app because it allows women to make the Mm -hmm. first move. And one of, uh, another, you know, repeated complaint you hear from people is that the minute you have a match uh, or the minute you're on one of these dating apps, you're treated to a deluge of dick pics and videos Mm -hmm. with guys Mm -hmm. masturbating and crying Mm -hmm. your name. And, you know, note to the men, this is not sexy behavior. This is threatening behavior. It's bullying behavior. Mm -hmm. It's designed to make the recipient feel... Embarrassed or ashamed or awkward Mm -hmm. or revolted. Mm -hmm. Why are people doing this? And so that's. It might work. It doesn't work. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work. Mm -hmm. If you send a dick pic to someone, the woman is very unlikely to respond.
0: Right. So, but how do we
1: redesign these
0: in that way to create? Because a lot of it, again, is gamification that you swipe through people. I was. looking at it, this young woman friend of mine who was doing it and I, I, it just was like you get drawn into it i felt sick to my stomach that i got drawn into it and i'm thinking treating people like they're um well that, they don't like exist. they're interchangeable as right. in as if everybody's exactly. reduced oh, I don't like to that a photograph. Guy, like a photograph uh that guy is like this like you immediately to, made all these leaps that was not like me to do, but then I just did.
1: Well, I just think you can't imbue it with more power than it has. It's mm-hmm. an introductory tool. It's a it's an arrow in your quiver. It's not the solution itself. Except it's, to many
0: men it is. Like a many men, they can do that all night long, essentially. With well,
1: it. and women can do that yes. too. But yes. I think that what what you can't expect is the dating app itself to have the right algorithm. You mm-hmm. have to figure out the kind of people you mm-hmm. think you're going to want to meet, the the people with whom you will have something in common. Uh, the dating app can't do that for you. It can simply act as an introductory tool. And actually, one of my favorite stories is uh, a couple that met on Bumble and they this lived in Whitney, the same uh, Whitney, Whitney Wolf, Wolf Heard, yeah, who's yeah. also a co-founder of Tinder, interestingly, yes. and yeah. then she left to... She had a to, fight to get that title. Yeah. That's right and, you know, settled with a sex discrimination suit against Mm -hmm. them and then set up on her own. Initially, because she was so appalled by the hostility Mm -hmm. uh, online that there was and set up a social network which was designed to give compliments and then it morphed into the dating site that is Bumble. Uh, But there's a great story she has of a couple that actually lived in the same building. He would come out of the door, turn left in the mornings. Half an hour later, she would come out of the door and turn right. Mm -hmm. They met on Bumble. They now live in the same apartment building in the Mm -hmm. same apartment apartment. That's a wonderful way that a dating app can bring you together with somebody. But it can't do the work of of finding the relationship and finding the one, you have to do that yourself by taking it offline. Do you think
0: we're training a, a group of young people to think that it does? Because you know, I just—I I all joking aside, my son met one of his first dates on Snap, which I thought was awful. Like, and of course, when they met, it was a very different experience than online.
1: Well, I'm thrilled, of course, that they met <laughs> that, that they <laughs> we'll met <talk> on <laughs> Snap. No, I think it's—I think it's fine to use them as tools to meet people, but don't think that it's any more than that. Well, we it, can't imbue it uh, with magic no, it it does a magic. No, it doesn't have a magic. But I have
0: to say most of the communications with his friends and people he's going to date are on Snap or talking or it's all digital. They have digital discussions. It is like being on the phone all night. I mean, they do put video up and they clearly are interacting as real people, but it's all digitally. It's a photograph and then a, a, a filter on it and then a funny thing. I mean, that's how they Well, communicating conduct. with
1: Snap is different to communicating with some of uh, some of well, different platforms, right? Mm-hmm. And it's much less perfect. You're not striving for this curated right. thing. The thing is designed to disappear on you and you're. Right. it's re- really like the telephone of the 1970s. Yes, it is, it really is. When I would, you know, go home off the school bus and immediately and call my friend and say, what well, the hell's going on? And she'd be right. nothing. It's right. 25 yards, you know, away from your house and we've right. just been talking to each other. Uh, so I understand the need and the excitement around communication, what we mustn't lose sight of is the importance of communicating in real life Mm -hmm. by talking on the phone and actually listening to people by having eye contact. And there isn't a boss in the country that hasn't said, I can't believe you texted him, you're working in the next cubicle. There Mm -hmm. isn't a spouse who hasn't screamed at their spouse to put the phone down. And there definitely isn't a parent who hasn't screamed at their kid to put the phone away. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we're all screaming out for, I think, more attention, more Mm -hmm. human attention. And that's really what the book is about, how to create but that. But how do you do that when
0: you one of the things you do talk about is the is the addiction level of it. It's a really interesting issue because you, it's hard to I, I was just doing it's not just real, it's not just love relationships but it's all relationships in terms of how you interact. At like my son's birthday, my other son's birthday party, I made them all put their phones in the middle of the table, which was met
1: with quite a lot of problems. Well, you have to have the ability to put the phone down. You can set a timer and you can say, I'm going to be on this for half an hour and then I'm going to walk around for half an hour. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go outside. And I think we have to encourage people to get out there and join things Mm -hmm. and join clubs, join choirs, join sports teams, join amateur dramatics clubs Mm -hmm. and remind people of the value of, of teamwork with sports teams or putting on a play and the fun of actually hanging around with people and getting to know people and forming groups with people and doing things. And my, you know, there's this whole idea now that it's fun for people to sort of Netflix and chill in the mm-hmm. evening. And you think how depressing mm-hmm. to sit on your sofa, you know, watching other people do things when mm-hmm. you could be out there doing things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and I really do think that it's impacted a generation of of women in particular who are beginning to sound as if they're lacking agency. Mm-hmm. And I think that's because... We're we're spending a lot of our time living slightly once removed
0: hmm so one of the things you talked about in this the food thing is stick to your natural sugars um, porn is like chewing gum I want to talk about porn uh, you, you you and I have talked about this a lot I do agree I think there's something really uh, malevolent about the rise of uh, casual porn. I don't know how to put it. Well, it's the ubiquity of porn.
1: Right. is really astonishing at this stage. Right. And they right. say, you know, up to 60% of the web is used for porn. Mm-hmm. And I'm not anti-porn. I'm anti-porn as our default sex education. Mm-hmm. You only, uh, only 13 states across the whole of the US mandate mm-hmm. uh, medically accurate Information about how babies are born at school. Mm -hmm. So you have a ton of states where this isn't even mandatory, Mm -hmm. and porn becomes the default sex education for kids. It's where they learn about about Mm -hmm. sex, and of course, porn is developed for two reasons. It's well, it's developed to get men off, Um, but. Also, it's developed around the camera angle, mm-hmm. right? And we know that what works for the camera doesn't necessarily work for women in real life. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the women I talked to complained that they felt they were competing with porn because mm-hmm. if they didn't put out, men would just go back and log into Pornhub, uh, and that men expected them to behave like porn stars, mm-hmm. and so they wanted them to look like porn stars, mm-hmm. so no pubic hair, and they wanted them to moan and say the things that mm-hmm. porn stars say, and a lot of that is really cliched and it's nearly always involves the man at the centre of things. And I just heard relentless complaints from women about how are they supposed to handle this? And again, it goes back to communication. And I think... One of the things that dating apps has allowed people to do is to meet much more frequently, to have, uh, to, it sets up the expectation of hookups. And of mm-hmm. course, it's difficult to have good sex with strangers, especially if you've not uh, had, v- if you've had very little communication beforehand. I mean, mm-hmm. good sex is about good communication. It's very difficult to have good sex with someone you barely know. And so a lot of women were drinking through it and then the men would want them to behave like porn stars and often there's a sort of undercurrent of violence mm-hmm. in a lot of the Absolutely. porn that you see 100%. and you know women are expected to enjoy being flipped over and have their hair pulled and have anal sex on the first date and this is all not the experience of women I was talking to who which said, is made readily available by online sites which is much more it, so it's than incredibly it mean, used it's to be hard to get phone. porn yeah it's, it's on your it's one click away on your right. phone right. Right, well, and, and one of the other things is that there's an enormous amount of shame around porn too, Mm -hmm. which we can come back to. All right.
0: We'll come back to that when we get back from a word from our sponsors. We're talking with Joanna Coles. She has a new book out called Love Rules, and it's about dating in the new digital environment. I want to talk more about that, about the Me Too, uh, where Me Too's going, and also a little bit about Snap, because she is on the board of Snap. Today's show is brought to you by HBO. Wired Magazine says HBO's Silicon Valley captures all the dick moves and dick jokes. I would agree with that, and I enjoy them quite a bit. It happens to be eerily timely as startup founder Richard Hendricks pivots this season to launch a decentralized internet free of ads and data tracking. It turns out that the road to an autonomous peer-to-peer network, whatever that means, is paved with misguided car purchases, stealth acquisitions of pizza app, and a lot of public puking, as well as an ICO. No one said launching a startup was easy. Watch new episodes of Silicon Valley Sundays at 10 p.m. on HBO. Today's show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Does your business have any New Year's resolutions? Here's an important one every business should consider. Make your hiring process more efficient and effective. ZipRecruiter can help. You can post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. Then ZipRecruiter actively looks for the most qualified candidates and invites them to apply. 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com decode. That's ZipRecruiter.com decode. One more time, to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com decode. We're here with Joanna Coles. She is the chief content officer at Hearst Magazines, but more importantly, she's an author, an auteur. Love Rules, How to Find a Real Relationship in the Digital World. Is that going to be increasingly hard to do? I mean, are we going to, like, bots are now coming, the idea of virtual reality, Um, uh, you know,
1: robots, not just bots, but actual possible cyborgs, things like that. I do worry that the work it takes to create relationships um, is is undervalued and Mm -hmm. that the real power of communication between people is becoming increasingly undervalued and we live in a culture which encourages us to build up an army of followers and fans who are essentially anonymous to us and we think that if they like something that we've posted that that, that's a gesture of friendship whereas of course it's nothing uh, Mm -hmm. of the sort and true friendships are built over time they're built because you have to listen to people and turn up and do the right thing when you don't feel like doing it and the value of those friendships, it's it's very much like slow food. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's much more valuable to one's you know, sense of well-being uh, than someone anonymously, you know, retweeting you. Mm-hmm. And so what does that do what, how, how, what, when you say you worry? Because there are more
0: technologies where you can continue to separate from each other and you have to cope with in terms of beating people. I'm not kidding about virtual reality. Think about it. You could have a relationship with Kevin Costner. You're talking about the person who didn't. You could have one.
1: Well, that's true, but you wouldn't really be having a relationship with Kevin Costner. No, and I think a lot of the tools that are uh, are happening now with virtual porn and things, uh, you're like, why would you rather do that? Because real relationships are complicated, but Mm -hmm. they become even more complicated, and communication is even harder the less you do it. Right.
0: So where do you imagine relationships going? You you ran a magazine that was all about creating the best relationship you could have or, or giving people advice about that or feeling good about yourself. A lot of these technologies, it seems even though they say they they do make connections, really are deadening I, I, some of them are. I mean I have been addicted to nothing, but now I know I have a Twitter problem, you know, in terms of like and and realizing that it's a waste of my time, but not really totally because it gives a certain kind of pleasure in a way, not a you know not a sexual pleasure, but a, a Something it's, it's appealing to something within Well, humanity. I think it's about
1: staying connected, feeling right. that you're staying on top of things, that you know what's going on, right. that you're a part of something right. bigger. I think it's very easy to use these devices to connect to people. It's clear, they, and they do make it easier to connect to people, mm-hmm. but they make it harder to get to know people. Mm-hmm. I, listen, I'm an optimist. I think that being in love is so exciting that hopefully people won't forget how powerful it is. It's what powered all the great art, all the great books are written about mm-hmm. it, all the great music, is about love um, and the time that you feel alive in your life and you right. don't want people to lose sight of that I was listening to a fascinating interview the other day with someone who said that sex will eventually only be for fun and all babies will be created in labs because mm-hmm. it's just much more and satisfactory to do that's that a book. um yeah it's a book by <laughs> someone Greeley from Stanford I <laughs> yeah. think but a yeah. very, very interesting yeah. uh development um Look, I'm an optimist. I firmly believe that we're in the process of beginning to correct our over-reliance on digital. You see Mm -hmm. someone like Tristan Harris at the Center for Mm -hmm. Humane Technology. You know these conversations are beginning to happen. You have Tim Cook saying he doesn't want his nephew to go on social media. Mm -hmm. You see that the leaders in Silicon Valley are beginning to wrestle with this stuff. And you can only hope that the the power of love, the power of human communication, one-on-one or in groups in real life, will eventually win out. Mm-hmm. Do you, do,
0: what are your worries, though, in when you think about that? Because you are saying how to find a real relationship in a digital world. There are some points where digital is more appeal. It just is. It's more... Well, uh,
1: digital is easier. It's right. it's easier to have a, a right. relationship with someone on the phone because you don't have to turn up. You don't mm-hmm. have to do the work. And by phone, obviously, I mean texting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you don't have to listen to someone in quite the same way. You can maintain control. Um... But I think it's incumbent on all of us to teach our children that you must have moments without your devices. I worry that we're losing the value or understanding the value of solitude, Mm -hmm. that there's never any reason now to be bored. No, I I agree. You you know, that being able to walk out across a field and not have anything in your sight feels very boring to people. Mm -hmm. It doesn't feel like it's a liberating, exciting, creative thing to do. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to see how people will become really creative if they're cramming every waking moment with, with manic stuff that manic other people are doing yeah. yeah and you can see it turns Wh- what people's does it behavior do their current tonight?
0: relationship you this book is about starting relationships and having a realistic way of meeting people what about current
1: love relationships and digital. Well, I've talked about women, <laughs> I think, feeling that they're competing with porn. Mm-hmm. And I think people feel that they're competing. We're in the attention economy and mm-hmm. sometimes you don't feel like being 100% with someone because you're tired, you've had a long day at work, you just want to sit and sort of <laughs> look at relax the mirror, yeah. yeah, or stare out the window. Mm-hmm. And um, of course you've got this device which is promising you everything that's much more exciting just a click away. Mm-hmm. I think it's really challenging for people and I think we have to help people build behaviors around it where they feel okay being disconnected. Nothing's going to happen to you if you put your phone down right, for half an right, hour. Right. But you're so terrified you're going to miss yeah, something. Yeah, let's blame Trump for that, okay? Let's well, Trump we can blame Trump. him for many things. I don't know if we can actually blame <laughs> well, him for that, although it's it. true that you wake up in the morning thinking, oh what God, he what's he, do? he done now? <laughs> yeah, It's true, don't you? Yeah, how many, many tweets this shower. morning? How like, many what did do this well, yeah. What did he do while I was in the shower? What did he do here? But we also don't need to follow every single tick of his behavior. Mm-hmm. We've mm-hmm. been doing that for eighteen months, and it yeah. hasn't got us very yeah. far.
0: So, uh, when you're thinking about what of all the very different things, and then I want to go into me too. What is the think the most important
1: advice in this idea of love rules? Besides, I think the most don't important do to, like uh, French fries. Um, <laughs> I think the most important advice is get offline and get out into the real world and do so things. You're channeling like Ariana right now, aren't you? Yes. Well, her thing is go to sleep. sleep. Right? So she would sleep <laughs> through the whole thing. I say, no, no, you can sleep when you're dead. No, I'm a, a big proponent of sleep. I think it's very important. I was actually in the friends and family round on Thrive. Uh-huh. Um, but I'm a huge believer in getting out there and getting involved in life and doing things with other people because that's right. where you build... Relationships which are the connective tissue between humans. It's the right. stuff that's important. And we all know this. We all know this. And yet we all fall for the seduction of the phone. It's like right. we have this constant lover in our hand mm-hmm. that's demanding of mm-hmm. us and delivering just Very enough, just, just enough right. that we can't so quite it's put it down. It's ever. every toxic relationship you've ever It's every toxic relationship you've ever had. And it, can't be more, it couldn't be more important to learn how to put it down and switch it off. And what do you think is a good thing about it? What, what do you think is a positive? Well, I think the fact that it can connect you to people. If you're living in a small town somewhere in rural America. I was thinking gay when Planet Out came out. It was yeah, great. A, absolutely. It's a fantastic tool for connecting you. And if you live in a small town and you're reliant on your best friend's cousin turning up for, for some variety, mm-hmm. uh, then these are fantastic. They connect you to people you didn't know or We're living parallel. Yeah. yeah. of course. They give you a voice. We've seen the extraordinary outpouring of, uh, of support for gun safety and the kids in Parkland. I mean, they're incredible devices. It's just that the promise they were going to solve everything is mm-hmm. clearly not true. And we're now at the beginning of that understanding that we have to be responsible for our own behavior around them. So a plus or minus on relationships? I'm going to use phones as a... Ugh, it's really tricky. I think a plus for connecting people, but then a minus if you don't put the device down. I think a minus. Remember
0: when you didn't have to get back to people, like phone, until you got home? The phone didn't... Oh, I still don't get back to
1: people. I always forget <laughs> to get back to people. Actually, you, and people forget. You know, the good thing about these devices is people reach out and then they forget. If you don't respond to them, they forget. Yeah. They forget they ever Actually, asked Actually, Nora Ephron
0: had a great uh, essay about this, like how she moved from email to text to like how you just drop things off as you keep going. Right,
1: and if they drop off the bottom of the screen, goodbye.
0: Goodbye and stuff like that. All right, let's talk about, you know, one of the things you did talk about that is, is sort of the toxicity of relationships. And one of some of them have been in the workplace, a lot of the sexual harassment. Been. Where are we right now?
1: Well, I think we're exhausted by it, but we're also freed by it. I think it's been an incredibly liberating thing for a lot of women to realize how consistently badly they have been treated mm-hmm. in the workplace for a lot of women. I think yep. it's a huge relief to learn that they weren't the only one. Right. And, and we sort of know this when we hear about Yet another man that's been caught. The patterns of behaviour, the fact that it was never just one; it was eight, then it was twenty, then it was thirty. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's been very liberating. I do think we're at a moment now where men are claiming that they're scared; they don't want to be seen with a woman on right, their the own. Right, the Mike Pence Absolutely, he can only have lunch with mother. Mm-hmm. No one else is included. Right, I actually. I'm curious about that. Is that because Mike Pence thinks that he's just rapacious and out of control and he's going <laughs> to jump you, know. so he has to have his wife there? Or I don't understand I what don't that's either. about. It was a I weird guess. thing for I him think, to say. I think that's it. I think that's it. Very weird. Yeah. But I think it's we're, we're sort of a very liberating, exciting moment for, for women, and we're ready to sort of move on. And I think... To what? To working with men and women much more productively together, and I think if this says anything, it says the incredible importance of having more diversity in leadership. And mm-hmm. we know we are still woefully behind yeah. that. Yeah. And it's really shocking. Of the there are fifty five. And I know you're going to ask me which company it is and I can't remember, but of the Fortune 500 companies, 55 of them are in New York City and only one of them is led by a woman. Right. That's astonishing in New York, which is a fabulous place to be Mm -hmm. a working woman. Right. So we've got a lot of work to do on diversity and what I think was astonishing, uh, and I've talked to Jodie Cantor and Megan Toohey extensively, the journalists at the Times who got Mm. the Pulitzer for Mm. the Harvey Weinstein story. And they said when they set off on the story, people would say to them, oh, goodness, everybody's tried to do that story. Everybody's tried to do the story. And they'd be like, yes, well, we're going to get the story. And they're like, you'll never get the story. And here's the thing, everybody knows he does it. Everybody knows. So the sense that People knew this Clean and it was sight. somehow okay and they enabled it, but somehow they could live with it. And that, I think, is going to end now and people are going to be much more apprehensive about behaving badly. And also people are on guard now. Right. Everybody's well, now a cameraman. Like Everybody's waste got the zone of, of
0: all of them. I mean, I think what, what oh, I think There are lots diff- of
1: companies that have a sort of mini yeah. Harvey in them who's right. a bully. And, and right. what this really comes down to is bullying in the culture, right? right. That Harvey Weinstein didn't just sexually abuse women, he, he bullied, bullied men too. Right. Uh, I mean, almost all. All these guys that have been brought down bullied everybody. They were equal opportunity bullies. Mm-hmm. Nobody wanted to work with them. They just right. had sort of figured out a way to work with them.
0: Right, right. What well, was interesting, I think, in the Harvey Weinstein cases, everyone knew pieces of it, but not they couldn't imagine the whole. I well, think. and, the, and the whole was so egregious that right. no one could quite believe it. Right, exactly. People had heard little stories, but not enough of them. And then when they became when you you assembled them together, and I was saying this earlier today at an event. There's, it's no mistake that it was a bunch of women at the Times and a gay
1: man who wrote about this stuff. Right, and I think the women that Which came forward... Farrow, right, sorry. of course, Ronan Farrow and the New Yorker. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think what's interesting is that the women coming forward to talk about their stories mm-hmm. wanted to talk to other women about them. So, yes, male journalists had absolutely tried to get this story. Mm-hmm. And I remember being at New York Magazine when David Carr, mm-hmm. uh, who went on to be media editor at the New York Times, wrote a long profile of Harvey... Uh, and could sense some of these things and, and people had told them, but he wasn't quite able to bring the right. story home. But the women wanted to talk to other women about it. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to talk to men about it. Well, there was something that
0: happened. Once, once you get them as a group, it, it was really interesting. Well, so, and, well, all you need is one person
1: to come forward and then other people come forward. In that, forward. You're,
0: you're on the board of a tech company, lots of guys at Snap, too many, like not enough women in, in, in management positions there. What, and, and they're not unusual. It's all of them. It's pretty much all of them. Why did you join it? tech company, I mean, what was the perspective you were bringing? I don't think you're just coming as a woman. You're also a media person. It's a media company. It has media elements. What is the What do you really think your role is on a tech board?
1: Well, I was thrilled to join the board of Snap because I was very excited about the Discover platform that mm-hmm. has really become the de facto news platform mm-hmm. for millennials. Yep, that's And um, I had some incredibly interesting and very uh, thought-provoking conversations with Evan Spiegel, one of the co-founders, and Nick Bell, who mm-hmm. runs the Discover platform. And it was really about, how important quality content was online, that there was mm-hmm. so much bad stuff out there, yeah. so much stuff you couldn't trust, and how could they build a well, platform? Well, Snap actually curates and well, takes responsibility for it. And they're huge it. believers in human editors, mm-hmm. and they wanted to use media brands that were trusted and had stood the test of time. Mm-hmm. So Hearst has seven brands on Snap. We're absolutely thrilled with the the level of connection you get mm-hmm. with readers. So that's why I joined, because it was very clear it was going to be a dominant um uh, force in our times. Mm-hmm. And I love it because it's a fun, fun medium. And my kids, my teenagers used it, all their friends use it. And they were always laughing when they were on it. And the whole point is you're not supposed to be perfect on Snap. It doesn't mm-hmm. need to be curated to perfection. It's a silly picture. You're sticking your tongue out and then it disappears. Right. And yet it gets rolled over by Facebook. I mean,
0: the, the constant monster truck of facebook has impacted snap
1: we don't think of it in those terms i think that snap is very much its own thing we're very fixed on what we're doing mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, it's very much opening a camera onto the world. It's mm-hmm. an aperture through which to see the world. And that's really what we're fixed on. And it's very helpful to be in L.A. and not be caught up in the madness of Silicon Valley, which is very, very self-referential. Right, it's but, not but Snap has gotten beaten it.
0: up since it went public. It's gotten beaten up in the stock market. It's gotten beaten up in, in growth things. And right now is a moment where people are realizing maybe Facebook's not the best solution for our country in terms of, of communicating or whatever. Is well, I this think give- we're
1: at the beginning of all these companies, right? And we're trying to figure out the ways that the business model works with the ways that we actually use them.
0: Mm-hmm. And when you look at what happened last week in with Facebook, how did you look at that? What did you think that was
1: about? I thought that was about how little our politicians understand tech and how mm-hmm. complicated it is to be able to try and, and regulate these things. I came away still unclear what Facebook is from it. I think the existential question that they were all trying to understand mm-hmm. was what is Facebook? And of course, what's complicated now I think perhaps the the senators and the. Uh the politicians hadn't fully recognized was that each of their experiences of facebook was different to another politicians because you have a very personal connection
0: mm-hmm. with mm-hmm.
1: facebook and clearly they contract out their social media to younger members of their teams mm-hmm. and that became so apparent with the questions mm-hmm. they were asking so what happens because it's not a good moment
0: for tech right now and i'm just facebook's just the example of it
1: well i think what the public probably wanted was some sort of reckoning they wanted to see a young billionaire get beaten up by politicians for you know for a massive breach of trust Mm. and we're seeing a company wrestling with how to rebuild that trust and we're at such an interesting point in our culture in terms of trust because you know half the country doesn't trust the president the other half doesn't trust the media trust is at an absolute uh crisis point, I think. Mm -hmm. And and who do you end up trusting? You know, you don't trust the banks. They brought about the world's Mm -hmm. economic crisis. Uh, Kids don't trust their colleges necessarily anymore because they think they're being ripped off over student loans. Mm -hmm. And I think you end up... Believing in the people that you know and you've had relationships with, those are the people you trust, mm-hmm. right? That's where trust resides.
0: Mm-hmm. And so, what happens then in that? Because it feels like things are careening apart. I mean, in terms of one of the things you say at the, la- I think the last rule of this is. Um, not what is it? It's well, uh, the last fine. rule is He's that life, life is a feast, feast. <laughs> take your seat at the table. Well, you know, but it's
1: really about what life a banquet, where
0: most poor suckers are starving. You well, know? that's from Auntie Meme. It,
1: um, it's really about You um, know, I end the book reflecting on 9 11 and yeah. quoting Ian McEwan, actually, Dan who had a Auden wonderful essay. Auden, yeah. yeah, they're all in there. It's mm-hmm. there are moments of poetry like in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you imagine a crisis in your life, Mm -hmm. who do you want there with you? Yesterday I was in... um Well, actually, yesterday I was here in San Francisco, and uh, there was supposedly an earthquake. Now, it was only 3.3 on the Richter scale. But nevertheless, Mm -hmm. I was thinking about, well, what do you want in an earthquake? You don't want a Facebook friend in an earthquake. You want an actual friend Mm -hmm. to cower under the table, under the stairs with you, Mm -hmm. right? That uh, in the actual important moments in your life, you want to be supported and you want to support Mm -hmm. real people, not people that you think you have a connection with who in fact you're never going to meet. Right, except we're not often in earthquakes every day. It's you live a regular life. Well, that's true, but when something like 9/11 happens, the mm-hmm. thing that everybody wanted to know was who's the person you were going to call and I remember a friend of mine turning to me and saying, you know, one of the worst moments in my life was after 9/11 realizing I didn't have anybody to call.
0: Wow. Oh, that's depressing, Joanna.
1: You're not going to end on that. <laughs> I'm not well, actually, it was, it was interesting. I had, women, I had some early. I had earlier. Mm. I had some early readers who were very bright, smart young women, and they all thought that the, that note was a bit sort of gothic for them. Mm-hmm. But uh, but I think that people do think in terms of you know what's important in your life. What are mm. what are you going to give back, and what are what are moments of great meaning? Mm-hmm. And nearly always, they involve real people. So you you the last point you said is find real role models. Yes, I think this is really important. Right. It's completely underlooked mm-hmm. as a, or I should say, overlooked. It's completely overlooked as a real source of value in relationships. Mm-hmm. And you know, frequently you go for job interviews and people say, "Who's your who's your role model?" I'm sure you're always being asked who your role model is. I probably get that question once mm-hmm. once a week at this. Who's point. yours? Um, well. My role models are actually younger people who are coming up with great ideas and who are completely fearless. Mm -hmm. My role models are the kids at the school in Florida right now. I can't believe what David Hogg and Emma Gonzalez have Mm -hmm. been through and I think they're extraordinary. Um, But in terms of relationships, you're probably surrounded by people who've actually got great relationships and it's worth asking them how they do it. And in terms of romantic relationships, um, you know, asking grandparents, asking aunts and uncles, asking Mm -hmm. parents of friends how they managed it and how did they navigate the lows how did they get through the highs and what are the tips that they have and these are questions we don't actually ask of each other Mm -hmm. and yet they're incredibly couples who've stayed together are incredibly useful resources so what since you've been with your husband a long time right Uh, well we've been together we met in 1990 we had a fairly sort of tumultuous first two or three years Mm -hmm. and then we've been married for 16 years wow so what's your advice Uh, Well, my advice is one day at a time. My advice is one day at a time. But, you know, my parents have been married for 55 years. My husband's parents were married for 55 years. And you're much less likely to get divorced if your parents are are still Mm -hmm. together. Mm -hmm. And I think what you're looking for is couples that have great energy. And I quote a couple in the book uh, who started an argument while we were all having dinner. Mm -hmm. And then one of them turned to the other and said, BIC. And we Mm -hmm. were like, what's BIC? What's BIC? And it means bollocking in car, which means you're going to take the Explained argument... Explain bollocking to the non-British. Uh, well, it means we're going to shout at each other in the car later, i.e. we're not going to do this in front of other people. Yeah, I, hate because, it I, I hate because you feel incredibly awkward when, when mm-hmm. couples get to it mm-hmm. uh, in front of you. And so I think that for me was a couple that, oh, that's, that's a good thing to do. I might have been tempted to argue in public make everybody else feel mm-hmm. awkward. No, mm-hmm. just take it offline.
0: Mm-hmm. So to end, of all the 15, I'm just getting going, Cara. Yes, you got to, you I just think this just wanted
1: to go for another 90 <laughs> minutes. Oh God, I can hear people rolling their eyes. <laughs> oh, no, they're, they're groaning, not. they're groaning. You are riveting, Joanna Coles. You know that. I You're fear our our I'm not remotely person. riveting, we actually. All I'm very man crushes on Joanna Coles. Oh, just, that's you know, all the media
0: people. Um, so what, of all these rules... Which one's the most important? Is there one?
1: There's uh, fifteen. I do think that the rule about the treadmill won't start on. Yeah, I'm looking at that one. Climb yeah. on and press start. You've got to get out there and do this. You can't sit whining that you want a relationship, but not be prepared to put the work in. Yeah. And you know you'll kiss a lot of frogs.
0: Yeah. And you feel that people in the future will be more, if they follow these rules, they will be happier.
1: They'll definitely be happier. <laughs> There's no question. I want people. To, I want to remind people of the enormous fun of falling in love, of the fact yeah. that it makes you feel alive, yep. that it's exciting, yep. and that it's so much more fun doing that than staying in, hoping for a little drop of dopamine every time you get a little ring that someone's notif- you've got a notification or someone's liked something that you've done. Love, love, love. It's all about love. It's all about love. Cara, I love you. <laughs> I love you, too. Oh, my God. You've seen it here start right now. I love Rico. Yes, you do? Do you? I do. I, too. I, I enjoy it very much, and I love very your saucy. too embarrassed to ask because I'm always too embarrassed yeah. to ask. Yeah, well, but this it's, week it's you might not like it. It's on space this week. I don't forget what you were talking about. Space, Why wouldn't right I either? like space? That's very sexist know. of you to say. I I didn't, wouldn't be interested I, I in space. Know. I'm fascinated by space. Do you space. want to go to Mars? I would love to go to Mars, but not right now. I've got a book tour to finish. All right, okay, but you really want to go to Mars? I have no desire to go I would love, no to, I to, would into love space. to. Oh, God, I'd love to go to space. I'm just nervous that I would burn up on re entry. Yeah, you would. That's the whole point. Like, you're not coming back, worth back it? from space. Mars, would it be you worth know that. It? I know, but I, would, I, I can understand why people sign up to go to Mars. Really? Yep. No. Kara Swisher. Kara Swisher likes planet Earth
0: as. Big old mess that it is.
1: Going to space could be one of the things that I would approve of going of doing virtually. Right. Not in real life. Oh,
0: right, exactly. That's perfect. So are you going to send a copy of this and you send it to the Queen? Is this going to go to Donald Trump? I don't think Donald Trump's a reader. <laughs> well, then we'll have to settle for the Queen. The Queen. She looks like she's been married for 400 years,
1: right? Uh, She has. Yeah. She has. Yeah. I think three of her kids or all four kids are divorced. No, three of her kids are divorced. Do you think she uses online dating apps? I don't think she goes online. I think she's like those politicians and she just contracts it all out. Because actually the Queen's got rather a good Twitter feed, but it's all done, I think, from palace officials. Really? Interesting. All the very same (laughs) maid-in-waiting who sent me that lovely letter. Well, we're getting a new princess. So exciting. An American princess. Yep. It's
0: all good. All right. Joanna, as usual, it was great talking to you. I could talk to you all day. I really could. But you have to get to Los Angeles and I have to get, I don't know where I'm going. You've got to get home. Got to get home. That's right. And thank you for coming on the show. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. You can find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts or just visit recode.net slash podcasts for more. If you have a minute, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell other people about the show. This helps them discover great interviews like this one. Now that you're done with this, you should check out our other Recode Radio podcasts. On Recode Media with Peter Kafka, you hear no-nonsense interviews with some of the smartest people in media and, and entertainment who are not Joanna Coles. I also host Too Embarrassed to Ask, where we answer all of your questions about consumer tech. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from all of Recode's live events, including the Code Conference and Code Media. Evan Spiegel from Snap will be at the Code Conference. We're very excited to talk to him. Thanks for listening to this episode of Rico Decode and thanks to our editor Joel Robbie and our producer Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Wednesday. Tune in then.